Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. The 60s, 70s and 80s were very rowdy decades. The Māori land protests were just one part of an explosion of movements covering everything from women's liberation to opposition to nuclear weapons. Plus, the single most controversial event in New Zealand sporting history. That's right, the scandalous 1981 underarm bowling incident. Bow, bow. No, I'm talking about the Springbok tour. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Kia ora. I'm Lee Madam McLaughlin. And I'm William Ray. Welcome to the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside this. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. Part of what kicked off all these protest movements was a generational change. Kiwis who lived through the World Wars and the Great Depression wanted stability. And it finally felt like they'd got it. Unemployment had all but vanished. Government welfare and superannuation provided a safety net for Kiwis from cradle to grave. High wool and meat prices, plus secure markets and subsidies, meant we lived quite comfortably off the sheep's back, as the saying goes. In 1963, the National Party's campaign slogan was literally just, Steady does it. But the baby boomers had different ideas. They saw a society which felt stagnant, conservative and old-fashioned. And as the years went on, the people challenging that society got louder and louder. First, let's look at the women's movements. In the 50s and 60s, their biggest focus was on financial independence. The lack of equal pay made it extremely difficult for single women to live independently. In 1949, the Arbitration Court set the minimum wage for women at 70% of the male rate. In the public sector, women's pay was capped at a far lower rate than men, which prevented women from rising to more senior positions. This caused a huge fight in the mid-50s when a government worker called Jean Parker had her pay cut as punishment for challenging the system. The backlash was so strong that both Labour and National adopted equal pay for public servants as part of their election campaigns. This was made law in 1960, although it would be several more decades before women really had equal career opportunities in the public sector. Arguably, they still don't. There was also a fight for equal pay in the private sector. For the most part, men were perceived as the breadwinners. Women might work while they were single, but once they got married, their role was expected to be in the home. But 
In reality, married women had become a vital part of the workforce. The expanding post-war economy had created significant labour shortages, and increasing numbers of married women were taking up paid jobs. Like, here's a quote from a conference held in 1964 on the role of women in society. If married women stopped work overnight, 100,000 children would have to be sent home from school because over 2,500 married women are active teachers. 10% of the people in hospital would lack adequate nursing care because 1,400 nurses would have to be withdrawn. The equivalent of 20% of shops of all kinds would have to close down. Something like 2,000 businesses of various types would lose their managers. As we got into the 1970s, the women's movement broadened its focus beyond economics. There were growing calls to liberalise access to abortion, contraceptives and sex education. Plus, women were just fed up with the sexist assumptions of mainstream Kiwi society. The idea that women should do all the cooking and cleaning, that they should dress and behave a certain way. These things had always been challenged by a minority of female activists, but now there was a mass movement of young women who were prepared to openly challenge sexism. A turning point came on Suffrage Day in 1972 when a group of young women staged a mock funeral in Auckland's Albert Park to mourn the lack of progress since women won the right to vote. This protest got national media coverage and created a surge of interest in feminism from women around the country. By the end of 1972, New Zealand had at least 20 women's liberation groups. But this wasn't just one big unified movement. There were internal divisions, particularly when it came to the rights of lesbians and Māori women. Although we talk about an education programme in the schools, although we talk about reaching the women, the young adolescent girls, we must make an extra effort to reach the Polynesian and the Māori women. Nahuya Te Awakotuku is a Māori lesbian activist and academic. In the 1970s, she challenged the movement's focus on married, middle-class white women, and she shocked the entire country when she went on TV and openly discussed the existence of lesbians. The gay rights movement was also picking up steam in the 1970s. Same-sex relations were still illegal in New Zealand. Over the years, penalties for homosexuality had included flogging and imprisonment. Some gay people were incarcerated in mental health institutions. In 1964, a man called Alan Aberhart was beaten to death in Hagley Park in Christchurch by a group of teenagers who claimed he'd asked them for sex. They were tried for murder but found not guilty. The early LGBT rights movement made many attempts to reform laws on homosexuality. Probably the most important was the 1985 Homosexual Law Reform Bill, which proposed decriminalising gay sex and outlawing discrimination based on sexual orientation. This bill faced a strong pushback from many parts of Aotearoa, and in some cases some underhanded tactics – In September 1985, the anti-reform movement presented 91 boxes to Parliament, which it claimed were filled with 800,000 petitions opposed to law changes. But some of those boxes turned out to be nearly empty, and several of the petitions were written in the same handwriting. In the end, the LGBT movement won a partial victory. Parliament agreed to decriminalise same-sex relationships but rejected the part of the bill which would have blocked discrimination based on sexual orientation. A ban on discrimination had to wait until 1993 with the passage of the Human Rights Act. 
the mood for change infected politics. It was probably best embodied by Norman Kirk, who led the Labour Party to victory in 1972. Kirk was a big, charismatic man and a strong orator. He famously said people just want someone to love, somewhere to live, somewhere to work, and something to hope for. He even had a song written about him. A man of great labour is our big norm. A man of social credit is our big norm. A great national figure is our big norm. The hero of a commune is... Kirk's government engaged with the protest movements. His administration ended New Zealand's involvement in the Vietnam War and introduced the Domestic Purposes Benefit. The DPB did a lot to support single mothers and women who were trying to leave abusive relationships. But the Kirk government came unstuck in 1974. Partly because Kirk himself suddenly died from illness, partly because of an economic crisis, and partly thanks to his government's decision to block the Springbok rugby team from touring New Zealand. New Zealand had a long, passionate rivalry with South Africa on the rugby field. Matches between the Springboks and the All Blacks drew enormous crowds in New Zealand as far back as 1921. But there was a big problem in that relationship. In 1948, the white minority South African government introduced the apartheid policy, a series of laws explicitly designed to separate the races. Black people were forced into shanty towns, away from white neighbourhoods. There were black and white shops, black and white drinking fountains, black and white schools. The crunch point came in 1968, when the United Nations called for a sporting boycott as one way of putting pressure on the South African government to end apartheid. New Zealanders were divided on whether to go along with this plan. Many hardcore rugby fans argued that politics should be kept out of sport. The other side argued that breaking the UN's boycott would be seen as tacit support for the apartheid regime. The argument got increasingly heated, and when the Labour government stepped in to block the Springboks from touring, there was a huge backlash from rugby fans, who threw their support behind Robert Muldoon's National Party. Robert Muldoon was personally opposed to apartheid, but he promised not to intervene in any future tours, and his party won a landslide victory in the 1975 election. Muldoon's probably the most polarising figure in modern New Zealand political history. His approach to politics was my way or the highway. Like literally, my way was the title of his autobiography. He served as both Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, which gave him enormous personal power over how the country was run. Muldoon's victory in 1975 was partly thanks to rugby, but also thanks to his party's promise of a universal tax-funded superannuation scheme. This policy was very appealing for older Kiwis, but it became a huge weight around the neck of the New Zealand economy. And let's just have a look at that economy for a minute. By this point, successive governments had boosted local industry through something called protectionism heavily taxing or banning overseas imports and subsidising locally produced products. So, like, in the 1970s, if you wanted to buy a car or a TV, you pretty much had to buy one that was made in a New Zealand factory. These policies were great for employment. In the 50s and 60s, unemployment was so low that people joked the Minister of Social Security knew every Dole recipient by name. But there was a problem with protectionism. 
We had to import a lot of the raw materials these factories needed, but the products they produced were so expensive they couldn't be sold overseas. This meant a lot of money was flowing out of Aotearoa, and eventually that became unsustainable, particularly after oil prices spiked sharply in the 1970s, which sucked even more money out of the local economy. One solution was to stop protecting unproductive industries and focus on competing in areas where we actually had an advantage on the global stage. So stop building TVs and start investing in dairy factories. But that would have caused big job losses as the local factories shut down. Muldoon wasn't willing to let that happen and he also wasn't willing to cut welfare spending to reduce public debt. Instead, he significantly increased that debt with something called Think big. Basically, this was a series of massive industrial projects, mostly focused on new energy schemes like hydroelectric dams and natural gas facilities. The idea was that this energy could be harnessed to build up new industries like steel and aluminium manufacturing, which would bring in more export dollars. It would also make New Zealand less dependent on oil imports. But a lot of these projects ran massively over budget and failed to deliver the kind of benefits Muldoon was hoping for. Plus, these projects prompted huge opposition from a new environmental movement. In the 60s and 70s, lots of Kiwis had finally realised that our native plants and animals were in a desperate situation. Decades of forest clearance and predation had taken many right to the brink of extinction. People rallied to protect Aotearoa's last bastions of native bush. One of the environmentalists' biggest victories was the Save Manapodi campaign. Nearly 10% of New Zealanders signed a petition against National's plan to flood the bush surrounding Lake Manapodi as part of a massive new hydropower scheme. Norman Kirk's opposition to the dam helped him win the 1972 election. A few years later, 340,000 people signed the Maruia Declaration, which proposed a ban on logging native trees. So, as you can probably imagine, Muldoon's Think Big projects often ran into opposition from environmentalists. But it was the national religion of rugby that spurred the biggest protests of his administration. In 1981, Muldoon followed through on his promise to allow the Springboks to tour New Zealand. There's no way this game's going to start for quite a while by the look of things. Anti-apartheid activists were furious. Most games saw massive protests and sometimes violent clashes between police and protesters. Like famously, the game in Hamilton was called off after a pitch invasion while flower bombs were dropped from a plane on the test match at Eden Park. The biggest anti-tour organisation was HART, that stands for Halt All Racist Tours. Another big group was the Patu Squad, a Māori activist group which had grown out of earlier protest movements like the 1975 Land March and the occupation at Bastion Point. The goals of these protest groups overlapped, but there were also some divisions, like Māori activists emphasised New Zealand's own problems with racism and the importance of Māori self-determination. Pākehā protesters weren't always on board with those goals. 
As the tour went on, the conflict between pro and anti-tour New Zealanders got increasingly intense. Sports fans clashed violently with protesters. Families fought over the tour at the dinner table. Workmates got into shouting matches in pubs. And while he claimed to oppose the tour personally, Muldoon's government capitalised on the unrest by painting the protesters as criminals and using the issue to win support in the 1981 election. But the next three years were a disaster for the Muldoon government. Inflation and public debt were both rising rapidly. Muldoon tried to find a way through by micromanaging the economy in ways that seem bizarre by modern standards. Like for the final two years of his government, he froze wages and the prices of consumer products, and that was all part of a last-ditch effort to combat inflation. Muldoon's own colleagues in the National Party were getting increasingly worried about all of this. But the flashpoint which ended his time in power wasn't economics. It was the nuclear free movement. New Zealand's anti-nuclear stance grew out of opposition to French nuclear tests in the Pacific. And in the early 70s, the Kirk government sent Navy frigates to Mururoa Atoll by way of protest. The Australian and New Zealand governments took France to the World Court, but the French ignored the court's ruling to end its tests. The other big focus of the nuclear free movement was warships. The movement wanted to make New Zealand a nuclear-free zone. This would mean blocking ships from the United States Navy from visiting New Zealand, because the US had a policy of neither confirming or denying if its ships carried nukes. But blocking our allies in the States from visiting New Zealand was a very controversial move, and the debate raged in Parliament. Muldoon was convinced that New Zealand's security depended on staying in the United States' good books, Banning their ships from our ports could seriously undermine that relationship. But members of Muldoon's own party were fed up with his dictatorial style of government. The final straw came on June 14, 1984, when National MP Marilyn Waring said she'd cross the floor to vote for a nuclear-free New Zealand. Be it for reasons of political stability or political opportunism, the Prime Minister decided enough was enough. That night, Muldoon called a snap election and appeared on TV to explain his decision. But he was very clearly drunk at the time. So we got a date, Prime Minister? Uh, we got a date the 14th of July, which we've worked out at Government House as being the appropriate date. That doesn't give you much time to run up to an election, Prime Minister. Doesn't give my opponents much time to run up to an election, does it? One month later, voters went to the polls and National lost in a landslide. The first baby boomer-led administration took charge with Prime Minister David Lange. Labour soon announced that it would ban nuclear-powered ships and those likely to be nuclear-armed from visiting New Zealand. The United States government was furious. It effectively expelled us from the ANZUS alliance and downgraded our official status from ally to friend. But that diplomatic fight was massively overshadowed on July 10th, 1985. Late that night, two explosions ripped through the hull of the Rainbow Warrior, a Greenpeace protest vessel which was tied up at Marsden Wharf in Auckland. One of the ship's crew, Fernando Pereira, was trapped inside the sinking ship and drowned. 
A police investigation revealed the bombing had been carried out by French secret agents who were trying to stop the Rainbow Warrior protesting at Mururoa Atoll. Most of those agents escaped, but two were captured and convicted of manslaughter. The French government denied everything, then used its influence to block New Zealand's access to European trade markets. Britain, Australia and the USA all refused to step in to help, so New Zealand took the case to the United Nations. The UN ruled that the French were responsible for the bombing, an act of state-sponsored terrorism. It persuaded France to pay $13 million in compensation, promised to stop interfering in New Zealand's trade and make an official apology. In September 1985, Prime Minister Laurent Fabius said this. The truth is cruel. Agents of the French Secret Service sank this boat. They were acting on orders. For Kiwis, this was a huge moment. New Zealand had taken on a global superpower and would been vindicated. It turned out we didn't need the support of the British Empire or American military might to make our way in the world. And ever since, New Zealanders have taken pride in our independent foreign policy. The idea that we stick up for what we think is right, not just doing what our allies want us to do. Next episode is the finale of the Aotearoa History Show. The last few decades of New Zealand's past up until the modern day. We're talking Rogenomics, euthanasia, and the evolution of modern day Aotearoa. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision a video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.